Also, if you're here for the first time or you're new or relatively new to Kensington Temple, we want to say a big welcome to you. We hope that you'll find that this will be the place where you want to put down roots. And uh, we are committed to see everybody not only planted in the house of the Lord, but at Kensington Temple, our philosophy as ministry is to help you become everything that God wants you to be and that the gifts that God has given you for there to make, to make room for those gifts to flourish. And so at the end of the service, we'll have people with welcome badges here at the front. We'd love to chat to you, answer any questions you've got so that you can feel that you're becoming part of us here at Kensington Temple. Well, this is the teaching service, and at the moment, uh, we, are, we have one more after this week. Next week is the end of this short series on the Church of, church of Acts chapter 2, the first church, the first church that was ever born. And um, we'll be carrying this on next weekend, but then when we come into uh, November, we'll have a short mini-series, three Sundays, on the benefits of speaking in tongues. We often talk about the benefits of speaking in tongues, but, I, but it gives an opportunity for us to really explain those so that people understand what tongues is all about according to the scriptures and why we emphasize them so much here at Kensington Temple, how to put them into practice, and what the actual benefits of tongues are. So we'll be doing a mini-series on that. But if you have your Bibles, if you could turn with me now, to Acts chapter 2 and verse 40. We've been looking at the church of Acts chapter 2, and that has meant that for quite a bit of our time, we've been in Acts chapter 1, because you can't understand the nature of the first church until you understand what happened before Pentecost, during the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, and then life after Pentecost, which is what we're going to be <coughs> looking at um, right now. We spent some time saying that in, in the book of Acts, this is the second part of a two-volume work by Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote Acts. And he sees the book of Acts as the continuation of the ministry of Jesus by the Holy Spirit through his body, the church. In the first verse of, of, of Acts, he talks and says, the first couple of verses, he says, Oh, Theophilus, the former account, the Gospel of Luke I made, was about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And then he goes on to explain how Jesus appeared to 500 People, more than 500 people over the course of the period between Passover and Pentecost. And um, we see the church, or the, or the few believers that were left gathering together before Pentecost. There was only 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, I was speaking earlier on this week to a group of leaders from our movement, the Elim Pentecostal movement, on principles of cell. And I said to them, you know, Jesus is an incredible example of cell ministry. In fact, Jesus, he uh, valued his cell group more than anything else in his three-year ministry, more than anything else. He ministered to the 70 and he ministered to the multitudes 
but he would always return and spend time with his 12. It was his model. Because you see, your legacy is not so much what you leave, but who you leave. Because if you look at what Jesus left in terms of numbers, well, he left 100, he could, 120 people could gather in his name. It's not the biggest church in the world, is it? I mean, it's not bad for three years' work if you were starting a church, but this is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, to, have, and to leave 120 people, when you think of the thousands upon thousands and the multitudes and the princes and kings like Herod that he spoke to, and at the end, before Pentecost, there's 120. You think, well, that's not much. But Jesus understood the pattern of his father. And uh, he, was, he was forming in men. He was, he was not looking to minister to the multitudes so much as to form men that the multitudes would follow or people that the multitude would follow. And so this is important as we'll come to see the early church. Jesus believed in small groups. Small groups. But not small groups for small groups' sake, but small groups to minister to larger groups and the multitudes. It's a wonderful thing when you read Matthew chapter 9 and moving into Matthew chapter 10. Because there, Jesus, it says, sees the multitudes. And you'd have thought when Jesus saw the multitudes flocking his ministry that he would have said, we've done it. Come and have a look at this, guys. We have made it in the ministry. We can gather thousands and thousands in the greatest amphitheaters in, uh, in Palestine. We can bring them all here. And, and look at this. Look at this. See, we've made it in the ministry. And many ministers today, if they could gather crowds like Jesus did, whether it be on the front cover of every Christian magazine and uh, we'd say, wow, what, what a success. And, and we're not saying that large multitudes uh, are wrong. On the contrary, Jesus did it. But when he saw the multitudes, he wasn't sufficiently impressed. It says he had a compassion on the multitudes because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then the next moment in chapter 10, he moves on. It says, and he called his 12 to him and gave them authority and told them to go out and preach the gospel. So when he saw the multitudes, he understood that the answer to disciple these multitudes was found in his 12, and who they would eventually um, uh, rise up. They were sheep without shepherds. What God is doing in the body of Christ today is he is wanting more laborers in the harvest. And our role in many ways here at Kensington Temple is to take sheep and turn them into shepherds. So those of you that are cell leaders here today, or those of you that are, have done living free on Tuesday evenings and now are on mastering leadership, term one and term two, what, what's happening? We are equipping you and helping you, turning you from a sheep to a shepherd so that you can go and minister to the sheep. That's what Jesus was doing. You say, why are you talking about this? You're talking about the church in Acts. yes. Because Acts is a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. It's not, it, although there's certain new things that are taking place, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as Jesus has ascended, the principles are exactly the same. And so we have had the outpouring of the Spirit. Last week I emphasized the church was a church of spirit. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus said, I don't want my church to lack an anointing. 
I don't want you to minister. I don't want you to be my body without the comfort of the counselor, the Holy Spirit coming and filling you and giving you power for witness and service. This is to be a spirit-filled church. The church is to be spirit-filled. Christians are to be spirit-filled and what they're meant to do is meant to be done with partnership with the Holy Spirit, not partnership on our terms. This is what we're learning, but partnership on his terms. He is the senior partner. We, corporately and individually, are the junior partner. But very often in Christian lives, we refuse to elect the Holy Spirit be the senior partner. In fact, we invite him to be the junior partner to us. We say, Holy Spirit, will you do this? Holy Spirit, will you do that? Holy Spirit, can you do the other? And, and we're sort of like saying what we'll do and what we won't do and asking the Holy Spirit to come along and bless it. It's treating the Holy Spirit like a junior partner. And it's a testimony to the graciousness and humility of the Holy Spirit that he still often meets us even in that ridiculous type of attitude. Isn't that right? Because he's the Holy Spirit of grace. But this was to be a spirit-filled church. And we see then the preaching on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 came into the church on that line slide. And I ended last week by comparing the day of Pentecost in Acts with the first day of Pentecost. And if you weren't here last week, the first day of Pentecost took place 50 days after Passover, the first Passover. 50 days after the Jewish people put the blood of the lamb on their houses and were released from captivity in Egypt and they crossed over the Red Sea. And 50 days later was the first day of Pentecost. And that day was the day when the law came. The law came. They didn't celebrate the harvest and the wheat harvest at Pentecost until they went into the promised land because they were, they were having bread and water, weren't they, in the wilderness? And on that day, 3,000 people died. When the law came, it brought judgment. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to replace the law. The Holy Spirit has come to replace the law of Moses. If you are, if you, the Bible tells us in Galatians that if we live by the Spirit, we are no longer under the law. And if you have the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc., etc., you don't need the law. The, Ho you, the Holy Spirit has come. Relationship with the Holy Spirit has come so that we don't need laws any longer. You don't need to tell somebody who loves their neighbor. You don't need to tell somebody that's full of love, patience, kindness, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery. They wouldn't do that anyway. Why? Because it goes against the law of the Spirit, the law of love. What a wonderful transformation. And so this was the day of Pentecost. Power, not 3,000 dying, but 3,000 being eternally saved. And then we get to where I want to pick it up today. Uh, Peter has preached the gospel. And then in verse 40, we have a picture, a description of the identity of the first church, the earliest primitive Christian church that there ever was. Fresh out of Pentecost, we have a description of its characteristics. Uh, we have a picture of what was happening amongst the people and what they were spending their time doing. And it couldn't be further than traditional church today. It couldn't be further than Sunday attendance 
alone. And we're going to look at that right now. Acts chapter 2, verse 40 onwards, the spiritual qualities of the first church. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number the church being saved. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. This is a picture, a snapshot. What uh, Luke, sorry, did I say Paul? What, I'm hissing a bit up here. I don't know if there's something you can do about that. And um, what Luke is writing about here is he wants to impart to us a picture of the nature of this church. He doesn't tell us everything that they did, but he tells us the themes and the characteristics of this early church. And I believe that the book of Acts, as I mentioned in the first of this series, that the book of Acts is a model for the church today. Now, I know we're living in a different century, but these principles that we're talking about are transferable principles. And that as we believe that God is raising up an end-time church, more glorious than the first church, more numerous than the first church, and yet the principles of the first church will be the same principles of this you know, it's hissing so much up here, it's um, actually just, it's distracting. I wonder if you can help me with that. Thank you. That these principles will be part of the last global church. So what God put in pattern in the infant church will be seen in its fullness in the last glorious church before Jesus returns. I'm absolutely convinced of it. It's the pattern for us. And so when we look at this passage, not only should we say to ourselves, is the church in general reflecting these principles? If not, we need to work on it. But also, as believers, that's, a lot, that's getting better, it's still hissing though. Also, as believers, are we reflecting these characteristics in our lives? And if you're a cell leader here today, is your cell group reflecting these characteristics? This is what we're going to be looking at. And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that this speaks about what happens to new converts. I mean, that day on the day of Pentecost, 
3,000 people were added to the church. Can you imagine if we had 3,000 people saved in Kensington Temple today? I mean, I think our nets of con consolidation would be broken, wouldn't they? Our nets of... And we have a cell vision. We wouldn't be ready for it. We should be ready for it, but I wonder whether we would be if that sort of landslide happened on, on a Sunday. And uh, they got 3,000, but those 3,000 weren't lost. They got into a pattern of living as the body of Christ. And these converts were not just put their hand in the air, gave their life to Jesus, and we never see them again, or we try following them up and they're not interested. But we see a transformation in their lives. They, they, they're not just those that got saved. The converts become followers. Followers of Jesus. And guess what? The same principles of the disciples following Jesus in the Gospels became the same principles of the early church. The apostles did pass on what they had learned from the Master, not just in what he taught, but in how he lived and ministered. They taught, they, they gave by what they taught and what they did, and that was multiplied amongst these thousands of people. We see the church and how it operated in the public place and the private place. How are we operating as the church in the public place and the private places are very important, aren't they, for what we're talking about today when society tells us, keep it private. Well, the early church was, was what they did have private meetings in their homes, but they were anything but just private. They were very, very public in Jerusalem at this time. So the first thing out of this I want to mention is, is the message. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. It wasn't just, and we, we, we could go into the message of Peter, the, the, me, the, the message that launched the church all those years ago, which I'm not going to do, but we see that it wasn't just a message of forgiveness of sins. It wasn't just a message, Jesus can save you, Jesus died for your sins he died on the cross and carried your sins that you should carry. And if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, who he says he is, and was raised from the dead, you shall be saved from your sins. But it was more than that. And this is, this is a key word, because without this verse 40, I don't think the rest of the verses would come to pass. Without verse 40, if this was not preached, I don't think the rest would follow. Peter says... Be saved from this perverse generation. He didn't say, have your sins forgiven and then go back into a perverse generation. He didn't say, have your sins forgiven. And by the way, this generation is a fine generation and just keep on living like you've lived and doing like you've lived and, and, and that the society that you're in, there's nothing really wrong with it. Often today, we find that sometimes church, churches or ministers or Christians are, are so, so wanting to be relevant to the world that they become just like the world. They become just like the world. They say, oh, we've got to be relevant to the world, so we'll become like the world. We'll copy the world. 
Now, of course, we have to connect with the world and be relevant, but we have to understand that this society, Great Britain, the society of Great Britain is perverse. That's a hardcore thing to say, isn't it? I mean, that is an offensive thing. This society, London society, political society, everything at every level of European society is perverse. That's a powerful thing to say. Don't think they'd like it. But it, that's what Peter said. And he was speaking to a bunch of relatively holy Jewish people who were down, they were the good guys, come down to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. The bad ones couldn't be bothered to turn up. So these were the good guys in the perverse generation. Wow, that's a powerful message of holiness and separation. Holiness and separation. Holiness is not a bunch of rules and regulations. We, we already said Pentecost did not bring the law the, 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 in, in Acts. The first Pentecost brought the law. The second Pentecost brought the spirit. So separation from the world, the perverse generation that we live in, is something that is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not rules, regulations, church rules, church regulations. No, but the Holy Spirit comes and separates us and exposes the perversity of the generation and then separates us from it by his power working in our lives. So these people said, we need to change. Not just, oh, thank God we've got our sins forgiven. What's the minimum requirement now to keep those sins forgiven? But no, Peter said, this is the beginning. You've had your sins forgiven you. And now you need to get out this sinful, perverse generation from your mind. You're too familiar with the world. You're too accepting of it. There needs to be a radical change in your life. There has to be a new generation. Not the old generation made good, but a new generation of people. God's holy ones, God's saints, as they'll be called in Acts. There is a new way. The first Christians in the book of Acts were not called Christians. They were called the way. They were also in the book of Acts called, before they were ever called Christians, the way, the holy ones, the church of God, and they were also um, um, called the Nazarenes. The Nazarenes. What does that mean? The follower of Jesus, the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, what they were doing, they're Nazarenes. What do you mean they're Nazarenes? They're, they're just like Jesus. They are followers of Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus is to change the way that you live. And so, having said that, we then have now these other principles of the church, which is what happens when the church turns from the perverse generation that it is in. It doesn't mirror the generation. It doesn't play with the generation. It's not got one foot in and one foot out. Come out of Babylon, God, God the Holy Spirit says, but it becomes a different generation. First thing that we look at in verse 42, having come out of this, is, and you see that they were baptized. Bapti not just enough to give a decision. 
You must be baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. But if you have not been baptized as a believer, I'm not interested if you were splashed with some water as a baby or a child. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean a thing to God. It doesn't mean a thing in the New Testament. Infant baptism is not in the New Testament in any way, shape, or form. We dedicate infants. Jesus was not baptized as an infant. He was baptized as an adult, not to wash away his sins, but, but to, to show us a model. And these were baptized. If you've not been baptized in water and you're a believer, then you just look in the revival times, go to the uh, reception, find out when the next baptism is, and get baptized. Why? Because you're missing out on a blessing, that's why. They were baptized, and then here, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly. This is important. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about our new daily Bible readings and daily prayer diary. Uh, I don't, did we hand them out earlier this today? We did. So you had an opportunity to get one. You can get one from reception if you missed it. Why? Well, we thank God for all the prayer warriors in Kensington Temple, but we don't just want to have certain prayer warriors. We need, we want everybody to be in prayer and in the word. Everybody together as one. And so this prayer and Bible reading diary helps us do that. Even if you haven't had it, you can get it today. And what do you do? Well, whatever else you do in your devotion, you pray for the day's prayer point, which hundreds, and I hope thousands of us, are also doing that day across London. We have early morning prayer meetings, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where steadfastly we pray through these things, etc., etc. And so what I'm trying to say is this, is that these people did not blow hot and cold. If you miss your Bible reading one day, you miss your Bible reading, just pick yourself up and start the next day. If you forgot to forget to take it on holiday for a week and you come back, you don't have to, don't catch up. You'll give up the start on the day you get back. Just get into regular prayer, regular Bible reading. If you make mistakes, if you forget it for a few days, don't give up. Don't say, well, it's all finished. Just start on the day that you're on. It's not about reading every single verse in the Bible in a year or not reading it at all. It's about regular daily Bible reading. You get me? You need it. You can't survive without these things. And this people were steadfast. We'll see this again. They were steadfast, continued steadfastly. Didn't turn up to church once a month. Didn't read their Bible here and there when they felt that they had need to. Didn't turn up and sell whenever they wanted or whenever they felt. There was a spiritual discipline that was brought into a habitual, a habit in their lives. And spiritual habits are essential. Man does not live by bread alone. If, if, you're not, if you don't eat food on a regular basis, you're going to end up in physical problems. If you don't read God's word and study it's God's word on a regular basis, you'll get into problems. So these were steadfast and they continued. Continued. One of the things the Holy Spirit wants in our lives is Christians he can depend on. Christians that will be steadfast, that will be regular in their discipline and regular in all these things. Next he says, what are, what are they steadfast in? The apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. I've already mentioned that 
the apostles were not just teaching lectures or sermons, but it's what they taught and what they did. And the acts of the apostles shows us many times throughout the book of Acts, you will see sermon outlines of what these apostles and other preached. But also, even more importantly than that, you find out what they did. How they handled situations, how they handled persecution, how they handled reaching the lost, how they handled disagreement, how they handled missions, how they handled church. You saw, you saw just like Jesus, just as important as hearing is seeing. And the apostles didn't just teach by word only, they demonstrated. They said to themselves, Jesus was our model and now we are your model. We are your model in teaching, and we are also your model in action. Apostles' doctrine. And it says that they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine. So that, that means this. It means they, didn't just, they weren't just hearers of the word, as we, as we see. But they were doers of the word. In order to continue steadfastly, in an apostle's doctrine, that means that they, they, they were helped and they applied what the apostles said and did to their own lives. They put it into practice. And the principles here of the early church are the principles that the apostles taught them. They taught them the breaking of bread. Who else would teach them a breaking of bread? There it is, in fellowship and in breaking of bread. Let's take breaking of bread. Who would teach them? They didn't know how to break bread like this with Jesus at the center. I know that it was custom in Jewish time to break bread at meals, but this had taken on a special significance. Jesus, Jesus when he broke bread with his disciples the last time before he died, it wasn't the same as normal. He said, do this as often as you remember me. And he instituted the breaking of bread with him and his cross and resurrection at the center of it. It says that they continued steadfastly in fellowship. Now, fellowship, one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible, yet it is the second most important word to describe the church. We have two special words uh, above other symbols and pictures of the church. The first is ecclesia. The Greek word ecclesia means called out together. And the second word is fellowship. Colin has written an amazing, I think it's amazing, booklet. You can just, just about two pounds, I think it is, on the church. Because most people, I mean this, don't have a clue what the church is or what it's meant to do. Haven't a clue. They're just, they're just thinking traditionally and historically instead of biblically. So the second word is fellowship. And that word is koinonia. You know, in traditional churches, I think of churches where you'd go and you'd be a visitor and somebody would say, oh, after the service, would you like to stay behind for some tea and biscuits and fellowship? No, not really. <laughs> That's not what fellowship means. Fellowship, a better translation of fellowship would be partnership. Partnership. In fact, when Jesus calls his disciples, when he called some of the fishermen, and it says that they left their partners. The word for their fishing partners is koinonia, fellowship. So koinonia or fellowship means 
Partnering with a purpose. Partnering with a purpose. They weren't just meeting together for meeting together's sake. There was always a purpose to their meeting. Have you got any cell leaders here today? When you think about meeting with your cell members in ones or twos or gathering together on a weekly, ask yourself, what's the purpose? What are we actually meeting for? And, we, and, and we've taught you what the purpose is. It's to reach out, to be witnesses and souls, to win the lost, and to raise people up in discipleship maturity until they're ready to disciple others as leaders. What is the purpose? Fellowship. You know, we talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And thank God for wonderful moments of fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Thank God for all the outpourings of the Spirit and the manifestations of the Spirit and all the presence of the Spirit. All that's wonderful. But do you know the Holy Spirit is a Holy Spirit of purpose? He hasn't just come. Well, he hasn't come to give us goosebumps. Or he has, he has come, whatever else he does in his love relationship with us and his intimacy with us, he is a God of purpose. I'll send the paraclete. That's what the word comforter is, paraclete, called alongside. If someone's called alongside, they're called alongside to do a job. And the Holy Spirit has got a purpose. It's to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's come to bring, with an anointing, the words of Jesus and make them rhema to us today. He has come to empower us, as the book of Acts said, to go from Jerusalem, Samaria, and all the world to be his witnesses. This is what the senior partner has on his heart. The global evangelization and discipleship of the world. This is where he's going. This is the senior partner's agenda. And so we as junior partners, if we're going to fellowship with the Holy Spirit... Or if we're going to partnership with him, we have to say, well, what are we partnering in? We're partnering in the same thing that we're seeing the church in the book of Acts. Evangelism and discipleship. That's what the partnership is. And if we go to the Holy Spirit on different terms, then we're not partnering with him. And together, what are we doing together? Why are we here today? Why, are we, why do we gather in cells? Why do we gather in prayer meetings? Why do we gather in homes? Why do we gather in congregations? Why do we have a, a Grace for the City meeting out in a bigger place like Westminster Chapel for 3,000 of us? Why are we doing it? Some people, when you ask them why, they say, I, have no, I don't know why, and that's why I'm not going, and that's why I choose to go or not to go, because I don't see the purpose in me doing this, that, or the other. What's the problem here? Lack of understanding of fellowship. Fellowship always has purpose. So, you know, would you like tea, coffee, biscuits, and fellowship after the service? Not really, don't see the point. Or join us, fellowship with us, and together we can bring order to the universe. Yeah, I'm in for that. There's a fellowship that's going to change a city, a community, Changed lives. I'm into that. Now all of a sudden, we're, we are fellowshipping together with a great global purpose. That, that, you know, when churches don't do that, they get into all kinds of mess. And uh, when a church is not partnering together for the gospel, it has nothing better to do than start sinning, 
church splits, arguments, silly offenses. Wherever there's silly offenses, church splits, people falling out with each other, increased in sinning behavior. What's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. They've got their eye off the ball. They've got their fellowship is going nowhere. And because they're not focused, I tell you what, when you're, you can mess around, but when you're in a war, you can't mess around in a battlefield. When you know you're in a war, it concentrates the mind. And at the center of this fellowship was communion, the breaking of bread. And they broke bread in homes. They also broke bread in the temple courts. The temple courts could fit, um, one part of the temple courts could fit about 3,000 people in there. And so they were there and they would break bread there together. They would break bread wherever they were. They would, they would fellowship because they were, had purpose. But that fellowship would have, they were known for, for breaking bread. I don't know, are we known for breaking bread? I don't think so, not yet. We encourage people to break bread. We're going to be encouraging more and more. We're going to be speaking, I think, about this at our next Cell Leaders Net a week on um, Tuesday, about breaking bread in our cells. Because it's not just, oh, let's get a bit of, bit of bread and a bit of grape juice. To... No, no, it's purposeful. Because when you break bread, what do you do? You bring Jesus and you bring the covenant right at the center of what you're doing. Every time you break bread, if you're doing it properly, not just religiously, but properly, you are bringing into your gathering, your fellowship of twos and threes or whatever, hundreds, thousands, you are bringing right in the center everything that Christianity is. The cross, the covenant, the blood. You're bringing it right into the center of what you're doing so that whatever you're doing, the power of the cross, the power of the blood, and the power of the resurrection is thoughtfully and purposely at the center of it, and you've got to minister out of it. That's what they were doing. They, they were never far away from the cross, its power. They were never far away from the declaration of the power of God. And then prayers. Well, I've mentioned this a little bit. They were a praying people. They understood that the Holy Spirit came down when they prayed and they reckoned rightly that if they continued in prayer, the flow of the Holy Spirit would also continue. Where there is much prayer, there is much Holy Ghost power. Where there is little prayer, there is little Holy Spirit power. Take that at whatever level you want, individual, cell, church, corporate. Where there is little prayer, there is little power. Where there is great prayer, there is great power. Every successful breakthrough church, people like Yungi Cho, always talk about prayer. Prayer is the foundation. And not, and not purposeless prayer. Not vain babbling, praying about whatever people wanted to, or praying whatever, you know, little hobby you have. If your little hobby is Israel and Jerusalem, and that's your hobby horse, that's what you pray about all the time. I pray for Jerusalem and Israel. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about purposeful prayer that goes along with purposeful fellowship. Prayer that gets results. Prayer that changes things. Prayer that energizes the fellowship in the gospel that God has called us together. Then we see, now all who believed were together, verse 44, 
There was a unity amongst them. A powerful Holy Spirit unity amongst them. You say, where did this unity come from? The purpose of the fellowship. Where there is no purpose, there is disunity. It's purpose that unites. No purpose, no unity. But when we are gathered around a purpose, I mean, the, the mission statement over us all here at Kensington Temple is London and the world for Christ. I tell you, if we unite in our churches and cells and congregations for that, we'll ha we have such a job on our hands, we won't have time for disunity. But like I've said, disunity comes from people that either refuse to fellowship with purpose or just don't have a clue what the purpose is for their lives. They continued in one accord. And now all who believed together had all things in common. Oh, I've missed, I've missed, I'll come back to the signs and wonders. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, what this is talking about is generosity. The early church was a generous church. They didn't believe that whatever God had given them wealth-wise was theirs, but they believed that it was his. They didn't sell all their possessions. This wasn't some sort of strange communism, as some people have thought. It was, there, it was there, they were stewards of what God had given them. But when they saw a genuine need for the kingdom and for people of the kingdom, they released their resources generously as they were led by the Spirit. This was a generous-hearted church, not a selfish church. And verse 43, then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Supernatural. And the word here is fear, not awe. In other words, what was taking place was there was the ministry of the miraculous amongst them. And there was a great fear of the Lord, a great awe of the Lord. People had a great respect for God and who he was. He, God wasn't just tagged on the end like, oh, well, God, if I need you, I'll let you know. I'll dial you up when I need you. But God was right at the center. And there was a holy awe and fear of God, something that we need restoration in the church today. And then in verse 46, continuing daily, you see, this was a Christian lifestyle. It wasn't Sunday Christianity, and then getting by until next Sunday, there was a continuing daily spirituality around breaking of bread, house to house. They were in small groups. They fellowshiped. They, were, they, 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 they got to know one another. They opened their lives to one another. This wasn't pretense. This was real and genuine fellowship and partnership together. And as they partnered together, God molded their hearts together. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I love that phrase. A glad, simple people. What a powerful thing in the hands of God. And scholars that look at this glad and simple, what they mean is that there wasn't all this fighting and trying to be, you know, the one that was known, trying to have the title pastor. We don't see any pastors here, thank God. Do you know in the New Testament, nobody's ever called Pastor Bruce? There's no such, there's no, nobody's ever called, there were pastors, but nobody's given that title. 
You don't read the book of Acts with titles. The apostles were there. That's a function. But they use that and the elders. But you never hear. And Pastor Paul spoke to Pastor Peter while Pastor Timothy was getting the meal together. Then Pastor James turned up. Do you know, there, there is a demonic, there is a demonic flow of religiosity in Pentecostal churches today where people tag pastor on. It's not a term of respect because it's, it's not a biblical term. And everybody, doesn't matter who you are, you're pastor. There's five in the fivefold ministry. But you can't do it. People cannot. I have challenged people on staff to say, please, don't call me pastor. Colin says, don't call me pastor. They can't do it. They can't do it. Okay, if it's here, do it. But as for me, I'm trying to line my life and ministry up with Acts. So, you know, if you can find someone called pastor so-and-so in the New Testament, then I will yield. They didn't go around with titles because they went around with functions. They weren't looking for a title. They were looking for a function in the body of Christ. And that's a very important thing I just threw in there. Because this pastor thing is at the heart of non-acts Christianity. Pastor. This pastor thing is the opposite to what we're seeing here. Who were the pastors? Everybody was the pastors. Yes, there were fivefold gifted people that would be showing them and leading the way. I believe in the fivefold ministry, but the pastoring of the church here wasn't just some bloke. They were in houses, it was going on amongst them, and those with a pastoral function and evangelistic and apostolic and teaching, all these things were rising up among them. It was a totally different thing to a pastor and a steeple and his people or her people. Simplicity of heart. Praising God. You see the worship life here. Praising, thanksgiving, and having favor with all the people. In other words, they weren't in... You know, sometimes the reason that we don't have favor is because we're not out there with the people as Christians. Sometimes when you see Christians out there with the people, not always, but it's amazing. Wow, we didn't realize that you Christians were like this. Wow, look, look at... Look at Look at how they help one another. Look at when, <clears throat> when Christians show themselves. Yes, persecution comes, but also appreciation comes. Still in this city today, if you were to go around the majority of people in this city and ask them to explain what the church was and what Christianity was all about, they wouldn't have a clue, would they? Don't you find sometimes people don't have a clue what, what you really believe? They think you're this, they think you're a Bible basher, or they think you're a religious thing, or they think you're a joy killer, or they, 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 th they, you know, they think that you go to some sort of old-fashioned... They, they don't have a clue. You bring them to Kensington Temple, some of them are blown away. They never knew church could be like this. Why? In, in the early church, they were out. They weren't hiding away in their churches or their gatherings, but they were open. They were showing and witnessing. And saying, this is who we are. And people saying, look at these Christians. Look, look, we're getting to know what they are. And people say, they're not like what you said. Oh, these Christians are all backstabbers. They're, they're religious. They're, 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 they're back. And they're going, no, they're not. No, they're not. We've met them. And that's why they had favor with all people. Because they were living their genuine Christian lives. Now, as we'll see next week, that turned into persecution. We'll explain how God moved the church out and how persecution is also part 
of the first church. But it's not just persecution, it's also favor. Because we will find as true Christians and as the true church manifests itself, according to the book of Acts, we are going to have great favor and great hatred at the same time. Wasn't Jesus like that? You either loved him or hated him. People were either drawn to him or they wanted to kill him. But nobody was sitting there oblivious of who he was. We'll come back to this next week in our last session. I just wanted to give you a taste. I haven't gone through this methodically, but to give you a taste this week, last week, and the week before, and feel of the first church, because God is wanting to bring this type of Christian back into the earth. He's wanting it to be us. He's wanting to bring these principles that can be applied in different ways, but these principles that I've spoken to today, the principles are non-negotiable. These are the principles of a living church. And as we look at these principles in our lives first, ourselves, our congregation, and our churches, hopefully we're believing that God is already doing this amongst us. We're pretty far on in many ways in our vision. The vision of Kensington Temple and the vision of cells is extremely close to what we've been talking about today, isn't it? But what do we need more of? Well, we need more believers to be doing it. And we also need more of the Holy Spirit, don't we? God bless you.